Today's episode, we have a special guest, Stephen Buckby, and uh, he is a very uh, key a member of the Satir Global Network. So, Stephen, would you mind just uh, doing an introduction of yourself, and then I'll lead us in a in a short, and then we'll start our conversation. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, my name's Steve. I come from a place called Escanaba, Michigan, which is in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, at the very top. And I'm a social worker and a licensed professional counselor. I taught at a small college for 25 years, basically I coordinated the human services program, taught sociology. Mm -hmm. I um, fell in love with Satir uh, probably about 1985 after I saw her work in Chicago. Mm -hmm. and I have uh, been a passionate fan since then. She was, in my mind, one of the uh, best teachers I've ever experienced. So. Okay. Great. Okay, so that's a that's a good introduction, and we're definitely going to get into. I'd like to hear more about your personal experiences with her, um, how she's been meaningful to you personally and professionally, and we're also going to talk about the mandala today, which is a tool developed by Virginia, and which uh, you've really taken on and I think developed in your own way and have uh, created forms of it that I think are very uh, useful for all kinds of practice, not just clinical therapy practice, uh, from what I understand. And you've written a, a great article that I've had a chance to to look at. So why don't we start with the mandala itself and just taking a moment now to get into a meditative state. Let's just connect to our, our bodies right now. So that's one layer of, of the mandala and just turning to our breath. And for the people listening, if you'd like to close your eyes, you can do that. And just beginning to turn towards the sensations of the body. Just feeling how your muscles feel. What is the tone like? Are you feeling any tension anywhere? Are you feeling relaxed and soft? And just using your breath as an anchor to center yourself as you look and attend to the various parts of the mandala. Just be aware of your physical posture right now as well. Um, just noticing without needing to change anything, how upright or slouched is your body? Not judging anything, just observing. And next, we'll attend to any kind of thoughts that are coming up, any kind of perceptions or judgments about anything. Just pay attention to any thoughts that are arising. Maybe they're thoughts about things that you need to do, people you need to connect to. Again, using the breath as an anchor Notice the thoughts and then return to your own core. Just noticing thoughts and letting them go. In the next layer, try to attend to any emotions, any feelings. Maybe they're associated to some of the thoughts or the physical sensations that you noticed. What are you feeling right now? And again, as you notice whatever you're feeling, don't go into the feelings, just observing them and returning to your breath as a way of grounding and centering yourself. Now just take a moment to notice your feet on the ground and the environment you're in. 
maybe you're in your house or maybe you're commuting. Just making note of the environment that surrounds your body as you're doing this practice. Maybe the, there are people around, co-workers or family, just making note of them. And that's the relational, the interactional space. And if it fits, maybe you can appreciate some of the people that provide support for you, that love you and care for you. And finally, as we're looking, just see if you can connect to yourself, this deep capital S self. Some might think of it as the spiritual core of themselves, the life force, the life that's pulsing through you, that's breathing through you. that has to do with your worth and value, that it doesn't have anything to do with a particular role, but just is. Virginia liked to call this the I am. And with all the different layers of you, just try to connect to that life that's inside of you and all around you. Breathing it in. Sensing it, contacting it. Maybe even celebrating it. In a moment, we're going to transition from the meditation. And I'd like you to come to your senses and feel, if your hands are together, to feel the sensation of touch, your hands together or your hands on your lap or your hands and arms on the chair. And slowly opening your eyes and feeling the sensation of sight as you're looking around you, whatever's in front of you, and maybe orienting your head and looking around and using your senses to orient you back and to ground you using the sensation of sound also to ground you. And uh, welcome back. Thank you. It's very nice. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It's a good way to uh, start. Yeah. That, that, the only part of the mandala that I skipped was the nutritional and, and I, uh, don't didn't really know how to integrate it, but and I also have questions about it for you. So um, maybe we could start off with the the question of how's Virginia Satir's work influenced you, affected you personally and professionally. Um, could you start there, Stephen? Yeah, I I was thinking about that question yesterday. I um, I started out as a clinical as a social worker in a small town. And I started off in substance abuse, and then I moved to mental health services, mostly working with the police and jails. And then after that, I went to inpatient services. And all that time, I'd been working with lots of different families, seriously dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. And I read everything that Satir had written. I was looking for something that would work, something that would... Uh, I looked, looked for magic. I tried... Uh, you know, there wasn't much out there in many ways for social workers or in therapeutic tools. What year? What year time frame are you? 1973, I started. Okay. And so I was involved. I looked at everything there was. You know, there was uh, even transactional analysis, Gestalt therapy, mm -hmm. uh, Rogerian. There was a whole bunch of different schools of thought, but um, everything I read about Satir I liked because I like systems. And uh, I liked the way she approached it. And so I, um, when I saw her in 85, it changed everything in some sense because uh, she was, in my mind, one of the most congruent people I'd ever seen. She knew her context when she was working. There were about 250 people in a hall. 
I saw her work with this family in a period of 45 minutes and basically used everybody in the audience mm. to precipitate a change in awareness in this woman's son. And I thought it was genius. And so she put out a letter that said, can you, uh, there's another training program, Crested Butte. So I joined her in that program in 1986. So I'd already started teaching at the college, but I was still doing a lot of clinical work. And I uh, went out there and it spent 30 days and it was wonderful. Uh, Stephen, can I, st I want to hear about these 30 days because I imagine they were incredibly impactful. Um, I just want to make note that that initial thing, you use two words. One is congruent and the other is she made such use of the context. And what I'd like to understand is, are, are those things that it stood out? Because you looked at a lot of different um, theories and a lot of different forms of practice. Of those, maybe those words are part of it, but what stood out, you know, in your initial impressions of what you read and when you first saw her? What oh, well, what stood out was um, she was in, she was very aware of what she was doing. She was not, first of all, she made contact with clients in ways that I've never seen therapists do contact. She uh, made a contact that was very intimate with these people. There would be all kinds of people outside watching. But when she was working with somebody, she was working with just them. But she also knew how to use those people to, whether it was create a sculpt or whether it was to um, create an attitude in the room. Uh, and that was her awareness of the context. Uh, mm -hmm. I can actually give you the story if you'd want to hear it. She was working with a family and uh, the family really wanted mom to be somebody else. They wanted her to be more um, um, connected to them, less judgmental of them, that kind of thing. And they were all very successful people who lived in the fast lane. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Virginia did this little piece and said to the mother, close your eyes for a moment, take a breath. What turns the lights on for you? And she started talking about her children in such a beautiful fashion. Mm. And she started to cry and it was just beautiful. And then Virginia in her way said, now, would you open your eyes and what's happening right now? And how do you feel? And the woman ran right to a kind of super reasonable place and went, oh, fine. Well, the whole audience at that time was kind of hoping that this mother would have had some major transformation. And Virginia said, let's take a break. But meanwhile, there was a buzz in the audience. And so she took a 15 minute break. We came back and the son came up who she was working with and he was very agitated. And Virginia said to him, what's wrong with you? What's happening? And he said, those people, those people out there, these are all therapists, psychotherapists and counselors and they should know better. My mother's doing the best she can. Mm. And the lights went on. His lights went on. He says, that's exactly what I'm doing, isn't it? I'm putting this expectation on this woman and that's who she is. I really have to have to accept her for who she is. So just to set that up, she used the whole audience. Mm. How, so it, it seemed like she, in terms of when you describe making contact, she made such an intimate connection with this woman. She was grounded and rooted in herself. And, um, and in that space, I can imagine that that's what enabled her or empowered her to connect to this deep emotional place that allowed the tears to come to express something that was so honest how how did she, she use, how did, yeah she built safety how did she how did she use the audience in that situation to help then the son to have this the lights turn on for him well the son was reacting to the audience's expectations they were he was aware that the audience was disgusted with her mother oh because she went to this super reasonable yes, place yeah. she went through this place and the audience was hoping that she wouldn't come back to that super reasonable place right and so that whole awareness created this amazing gestalt for this kid and he went my god that's what i'm doing i'm doing uh, the same thing they did right. i'm judging her i'm expecting her to change because i'm angry with her that's insane yeah wow. i have to start accepting her for who she is and that was the change yeah. everything changed in the room Everybody in the room became aware of the fact that, yeah, in fact, we had some pretty unrealistic expectations ourselves, both for Satir and for this person who she was. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's reminding me of that, um, the Bible story of the throwing of the stones. Yes. What you're describing, where it's, you know, when, when Jesus says, okay, if, if anyone hasn't sinned, then you can throw the first stone. And it's like the son had that moment of like, they're all, they're all condemning her, 
but but I understand that. Like I can understand. Oh, I'm doing the exact same thing they they're doing. Exactly. This identification of exactly. of of the pattern. Yeah. So when I say I'm aware, she was aware of context. That's everything I saw her do in all in the short period of time I was with her, two years on and off, was she really knew how to use the resources that she had available, whether it was a blackboard or people. And when she talked to people, and you've you've seen her work, she made a connection physically with people. She often reached out, touched them, felt their hands, did a made contact with them. It, it was always amazing to watch her work. It, it it's that kind of thing. Just generally, is pretty taboo. Like therapists touching clients and touch in general, and like educational systems. In the seventies, what was the what was the temperature or was the culture around touch at that time? Was she was she breaking barriers with that kind of thing then? Or? She was breaking all kinds of barriers, absolutely, no doubt about it. Um, yeah. The interesting thing was uh, she was doing things nobody had ever done before. She was actually working with whole family systems. Um, she wasn't working with just a, a person about their dad or an, an individual in a setting. She would get into a room with five or six people, and she would actually begin to under try to have people understand the perceptions of the other people in that system she worked with uh and, and the way she did it was she would innovate in ways that nobody had ever seen before she would people put people in positions or sculpts just to give people a picture of what was going on for them so people could begin to share a common picture of their experience mm -hmm. none of us all grew up in the same family everybody grows up although we have the same people in our family none of us grow up in the same family my right. brother, my first brother, John, is 12 years older than I am, right? Mm -hmm. He grew up with my parents, and they grew up with him. The next child was my sister. She was, you know, eight years younger than him. And then there was my twin and I. Right. So, and my parents grew up as I grew up, right? And so what everybody, although we come from the same family, everybody has different experiences and perceptions of themselves and families. Mm. People often argue about how it was. Well, it's because they have different places and times in those yeah. systems. Yeah, yeah. And I, when you talk about the context, um, I, I'm still learning a lot about that. You know, generally, from my understanding of the iceberg, the iceberg is a metaphor to describe the intrapsychic experience that people are having. Yes. Um, and I've been starting to wonder if the context itself doesn't have its own iceberg, like. Mm -hmm. If thinking about it as kind of an energy space, like it's the relational space between us. And for me, I've been I've been challenging myself to to re to update my own thinking about the iceberg. And if because Virginia said she she transcended the specific, for example, the psychoanalytic um, sort of model of practice at the time in the 50s and 60s when she was coming up and. And the thing you're describing, the way that she was able to play in the space between people and within people, it 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 transcends, I think, the limitations of language and the form of things, the patterns, Absolutely. in a way that I think even to this day, um, I I struggle to communicate about in terms of what differentiates Virginia because it is, it's like it's not the words, it's not the specific form, it's the spaces between the words and the energy the intimacy the contact that you're talking about that physical contact the physical the 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 contact made through the eyes and through the touch that i saw just through the videos i didn't have the the honor and privilege of um meeting her but could you could you speak to that a little bit more in terms of what what you what sort of inspired you or sprung inside of you when you saw her working that made you think there's something different going on here because that that was my feeling just from reading about her and watching videos of her that there was something very different and unique um well you know she did come out of this humanistic psychology thing she really was when she came out of eslin she mm -hmm. brought with her a whole set of tools also that she came with that uh were about um sculpting creating the dynamic relationships um that was also very new and not mm -hmm. something that people did. She also talked to people. You know, in, in therapy, historically, many people didn't get talked to. She responded right to people. She looked them in the face. She made contact with them. Can you? I didn't quite understand that. She talked to people and and well, sorry, she, I didn't. She actually engaged them in conversation. She didn't say just how do you feel? How do you feel about that? She really took people down and and paid attention to them all the time. Mm -hmm. um, 
what differentiated her? Well, everything, her creativity. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I remember talking, I put this up this morning. I don't know if you can see it on the wall here, hanging up there. Yeah. But that's yeah. a mobile. Yeah, yeah. She talked about families being like mobiles. So, and I, so I made those. I make those for people to talk about how their systems work. Mm -hmm. That's what she did. She would actually, and so what was unusual, first of all, is she actually gave people a framework and tools that they could use, number one. Mm -hmm. She gave the, um, her innovation around a teaching style, her, her uh, I get so excited to have me talk about this. Mm -hmm. When I, uh, the iceberg was an, is an interesting idea, and you talk about context, for example. Context is, there's an internal context and there's an external context, right? Right. You have inside and you have outside. When you look at the mandala or the idea of the mandala, it's a circle. There's an inside and there's an outside. So there's that connection. And that's mm -hmm. strange, but context is where you drift in life. It's where you are since it's based in time. And it never stays the same. It's mm -hmm. constantly changing. Constantly. Families don't change, so stay the same because they're always changing. If one person's context changes, it impacts the whole system. So one of the amazing things about Satir was that awareness about context. <clears throat> Where did people come from? How, what are the rules they had in that context? If you look at every dimension of the mandala, and I have, you know, I give people these little things and I have them make their families, mm. you know, at what dimension did your parents connect? Was it the emotional dimension and physical dimension? What connect, what issues do they have around their interaction? Can they talk to each other? Do they have different rules? So right. that's one of the things that I really liked about her is that she was a teacher first. Mm -hmm. And it was, sounds like there was a concreteness to the tools that she developed that wasn't really available in these other models and other therapies. Absolutely. 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 I, do, I don't know anybody that was doing sculpting that was actually bringing families out of their chairs and having them move about and talk to each other in new ways or have a man, a woman stand on a step stool so she's for the first time in her life talking to her husband eye to eye. That's mm -hmm. pretty uh, innovative. That's pretty courageous. I wonder if we can transition into talking about the mandala because that might illustrate, it, it might further our conversation about what differentiated Virginia and then touch up, touching upon the experiential parts of how she she maybe introduced it to you and then how you use it. So could you introduce us to what the mandala is and the different components of it and and how she used yeah. it? And, and I'll do it shortly. I have been known to do it for days. <laughs> <clears throat> when you talk about it, the mandala, first of all, is like a belly button. That's how we, when I was sitting in the room, I remember where I was sitting. She talked about everybody in the world has a belly button. You have one, and I have one. And that's the first connection that indicates our first being on our own. We're into mm -hmm. the world. Everybody shares that experience. Okay, so she starts out with the idea of the universal. That's pretty courageous. At that time, when she was she was aware of the work of uh, people like uh, Margaret Mead were doing, and they were talking about universals. And many psychologists in the world believe there's no such thing as a universal. Mm. Okay, so Satir said, yes, there are. There are human universals. Those are, and no matter what culture you go into, no matter where I am, I will probably will make a connection because there are some things that we all share. And so she said, we all share a spiritual connection. And from that, now we can go into all kinds of places. We can talk about the spiritual as um, a sacred and secular kind of thing. We can talk about it as a religion, or we can talk about it as life energy. It depends on where I am, what context. If I'm in China um, or other places, I might talk about it as a spiritual energy, life energy. Right, right. What does spiritual mean? So, and there are rules that every family has also about that dimension. And so, mm -hmm. by the way, these are not really separate. They're all connected. So if you look at the core is, is the self, but around the self are these dimensions. I fell in love with it because I didn't see anybody developing it. And I, I thought it was such a powerful model <clears throat> that I remember really asserting my uh, argument that it should be included in everything. But anyway, 
Included in everything. What do you mean? All the everything. writings. We needed to write more about it. We needed to okay. There. We within to within the satire trainings, within the satire right. community, that it needed to be highlighted is right. is a powerful tool. I want to come back to this uh, the theme of the universal because what that what that resonates in me is this idea of universal wisdom, and I think she wasn't afraid to say what she thought was universally wise in a way of thinking about humanity. And and putting sort of her stake in the ground and saying something like, you know, we have eyes in the front, which means that we can only make contact with one person at a time. We're not like fish. We don't have eyes on the sides. So that connection and that contact needs to be very focused. And then and you describe that in the way with touch and making contact and the safety and the intimacy that that was a universal that she she knew and believed in and embodied. Um, so it seems that this with the tool of the mandala, it spoke to many universal that there's these layers, um, which I'd like you to describe in, in a little bit more detail, these layers that are universal, that are common across cultures. The form of these things like spirituality change, right? Like maybe in Asian cultures, it's Taoism, and in another culture, it might be Christianity. But the idea of spiritual, of spiritual level is universal. Could you describe a little bit more with the, the other layers of the mandala well, are for when you for say that? I think you illustrate also the point is that the context again influences every one of the dimensions. So again, how you perceive if I go to the Czech Republic, 80% of the people would be call themselves atheists. If I cross the border 15 miles away, 80% of the people are Catholic. So the context obviously is going to determine how they're going to look at the spiritual or de right. define spirituality. Right. Intellectual right. is also another dimension. Is that is how do you take in information in the world? And how many kinds of intellect are there? People have a way of diminishing themselves by looking at what they can't do rather than what they can do. So mm -hmm. when I talk about intellect, I'm not talking about just being smart. It's also about talent, skills. So not just IQ, no. not just IQ, but also, and I, from what I read from your article, you've referenced Howard Gardner's work on multiple intelligence and, yeah, the artistic and, and right. this kind of thing. So. Yeah. When you talk, and intellectual is also, it can certainly be an issue in, a, in families if you're interested in a particular idea that may not be allowed or uh, tolerated, that intellectual pursuit may be thwarted. If you're smarter than your parents in a particular area, they may in fact feel inadequate towards you, which often happens actually. Mm. So you have that kind of issue. This is just a dimension. Every culture in the world has something about intellect. You have to learn and you have to be able to survive and adapt. And that's part of the intellect, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then beyond the intellect, what are the this, other? What are well, the, the sensual is, is that's one of those things you're talking about. It's, it's the senses is the ability to take in information. You don't put information out, you take it in, and you take it in through all five senses, mm -hmm. right? Sight, you have, and the, the amazing thing about this is touch, smell, all those things, hearing, taste, Everything that goes into the system, you have to make meaning about. Yeah. So that changes, that affects our perceptions, and that's connected with emotions and also about intellect. So again, you can see how the, the central piece is how, uh, the feelers that we have in the world, how we take in information about the world through these mm -hmm. things, and then how we make meaning about those things. For example, if you meet somebody you don't like and it's an immediate response, then obviously it's a historical recall, right? It's a, a pattern has been recognized. Right. Right. Virginia, you call them hats. So then you have to say to yourself, well, who does this person remind me of and take that hat off of them? That's senses are powerful. How many ways can your mother say your voice, your, your name? Mm -hmm. uh, so when you the <laughs> few thoughts, ways, yeah very powerful yeah um so so it's it seems that by differentiating the different layers of the mandala between the sensual and i, I know that this was something that she articulated so well which is what what did you see and you and hear separate to what meaning did you make right right and so the meaning that you make the meaning is that in the intellectual uh, realm of the mandala, or where would you put that? It's at both. It's okay. at both intellectual and emotional, and I think this is okay. really a very important thing that sometimes we don't talk about, but that is that it, feelings are not the same as emotions. Emotions are hardwired. 
Feelings are the thing, the experiences we have about that emotion, right? First, you have so the sensual piece triggers an emotional response, and then a feeling about that. Fear, for example, how do I feel about fear? You know, so that there is a an amazing piece about emotions. Mm -hmm. Emotions are also when I get that trigger, I also use the patterns I've had in the past. I have a feeling of whatever it is, inadequacy. What, but, but feelings and emotions are triggered by this sensual piece. Okay, so so now we're into a different layer, the the emotional layer, and you're making this distinction between emotions and feelings. So you're defining emotions as the um, as sort of the the below the cortex, the the the, the fear. The sadness, the anger, like those kinds of primary, yes. those base, those base right, level emotions. Right, the physiology. The, in the physiology that are that are part of the mammalian brain, the reptilian brain, and then you're talking about feelings about those feelings. Is mm -hmm. that right? That's right. Okay, and that's and that's the more sophisticated layer. And does that then get into rules about feelings? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yes. For example, um, let's say it's a gender-based issue, and you're angry, but girls aren't supposed to get angry. So what do you do with the anger? It changes how you do things, right? It, it, if you have a rule about that, how you can interact, because that's one of the dimensions is interaction, okay. right? right? So how things get expressed, it depends upon the context that we're in and the rules that are that are surrounding us. Um, right. So a person could feel shame about feeling cry. anger. Sorry? I'm sorry, good boys don't cry. Okay, yeah. So then they feel shame if they cry. So there you go. Yeah. So then, and that's then the so the next thing is, what do they teach their son about that? Right. And how do they teach them that? Right. And then so, that's the intergenerational pattern that gets right. passed on. Right. So the next one I think is that gets a lot of confusion is the nutritional piece. Yes, I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to learn about that one with you. Well, you know, yeah. if you look at the mandala, yeah, and you look at the eight dimensions, every dimension has to be fed. Just think about, you know, some people look at, when you look at the Satir model or the, the, uh, the another a new book that just came out, they kind of talk about the, the uh, nutritional piece as a just eating, taking in nutrition. Mm -hmm. Though it's very important, that's not what it's just about. It's also about drug addiction, alcoholism, right? It's about overeating. Nutrition is how do you feed each dimension? How do you feed your spiritual piece? How do we take time every day? Do we take time to meditate, to, to take to real to, to, to realize that we have an, a man, amazing selves? Not very often. So how do we feel? How do we nurture and, and, and feed our intellectual peace? How do we feed our spiritual peace? How do we? Yeah, Those that's are that's really interesting, Stephen. Because the way because you just used the word, and when you were defining it, like nutritional, you're using the you're the def, you're defining it as nurturing. Yeah. The act of nurturing across dimensions. How are you nurturing these different, um, these different layers of yourself? Your emotional self, your interactional self, your spiritual self. How are you nurturing that? Sure. So it, it's more a principle than the concreteness about like what's going into your mouth. It's more than that. It's yeah. you have to, listen. You know, when I, one of the hardest things as a social worker early on, I learned, and you probably met children too. But these are failure to thrive babies. Babies yeah. weren't held because moms didn't know how or whatever. And what's really amazing to me is how fast they respond to, to connection, mm. how they will mm. actually begin to thrive. And what you're doing is you're not just giving them the milk or the food. What you're giving them is the love. You're giving them some energy. How fast people heal often is related to what kind of support systems they have. So I think about nutrition as taking in things, taking in new information at the intellectual level, things like if you're going to be looking at geriatrics, for example, one of the best things to do, right, is to stay active and to stimulate your brain. How do you, so that's a nutritional piece. How do you feed your brain? How do you feed your emotions? Mm -hmm. In my life, I've had clients that I have to, I say to them, you have to learn to play. You have to go mm -hmm. play. They don't know how to, because they've gotten so lost in their, in their business or their support issues or whatever they are that how do you take care of that piece this is really this is interesting Stephen. the way the way that you're describing nutritional is so different than any way i've heard it described before because generally you know i remember virginia said something like the context sets the content that allows for the change to happen 
right? So when we're in a particular context, it allows us to give us a form of what we're talking about, but the process is the primary thing, right? So whether we're talking about, okay, I want to change my diet or I want to communicate better, the specific content piece around, like maybe you're talking about um, how chores are divided up, that's, that sets the, the sort of the chessboard of which you're, you're playing, but the process, the process of um, engagement, of making contact, of having the freedom to comment, the freedom to feel, the process that undergirds all of that, that's where the magic is. And when you're talking about this concept of n how nurturing, it's like nurturing is a principle that we need to keep in mind across all of the different layers of the mandala. It almost sounds... Absolutely. It's, it sounds like you're defining it almost in a meta way that actually transcends or needs to be incorporated in each of the different levels of the mandala. Um, Let's see, I see them all as connected. Mm -hmm. Okay. See, and I think, you know, for example, when you talk of tell people become, get more healthy, when you talk about people changing patterns, what you're doing is teaching them how to, to uh, feed themselves in a new way, in a different way. You're teaching them change physical changes you're cha teaching them emotional changes you're definitely teaching them intellectual to be cognitively aware uh, of things so you're in fact feeding each of those dimensions think about information as food you know uh, it's that is so cool Stephen. this is really yeah this is really uh, ex helping me expand because yeah because that's the systemic nature of how virginia worked that these layers and I, she used to use uh, this metaphor of a soup. Yep. You're putting each ingredient in and what they're, when they're combined together, like they form something that couldn't be formed in and of themselves. So right. the, the principle of nurturance, of, like you're describing, taking new things in, adds something to thinking about the principle of interaction. How are we thinking about relationship? How are we, how are we treating or relating to emotions and th that other layer of ourselves and then the spiritual? Which reminds me of one of the things she used to say, if this doesn't fit for you, throw it out. If it, take it in, try it on, and throw it out. Mm -hmm. The process of change, right? There's an integration. If, if you take something in and it doesn't work, get rid of it. Expel it. It's part of the system. Right, right. Okay. So, Anyway, what else? We're, well, there's we're... interaction and there's, there's yeah, the idea yeah. of how you talk to yourself and how you talk to other people. So mm -hmm. you talk to yourself. One of the things we deal with as therapists is how to help people um, change their internal dialogues, right? How to right. become aware of particular kinds of patterns. And then also, how do they talk to other people? And those are often based upon family systems rules and family system patterns. So although people say, I'll never do what my parents did, oftentimes they say exactly what they did because that's what they know how to do, right? Mm -hmm. So does that get into, when you're talking about the interactional, is this a good place to talk about the coping, the survival coping stances of blaming, Absolutely. placating, super reasonable and irrelevance? Well, um, yes. Yeah. But I also say this. Every one of these dimensions that we talk about is on the mandala. You are vulnerable about. We have vulnerabilities around every one of these dimensions. And so uh -huh. when those vulnerabilities are triggered, that's when we kick in our defenses. That's when we use our coping stances. For example, when I'm feeling intellectually challenged, I can tell you exactly what I do. I often become irrelevant. I distract you so fast you won't even know what happened. Mm -hmm. We have a good time, but the conversation has changed completely. Right. So I will become irrelevant. So that's a pattern that I will use. So we will use a, a, these stances around every one of these dimensions. Right, right. And the way you defined it initially, you, you said how you talk to yourself and other people, how how that dialogue is happening. Uh, I also, when you use the word talk, I also thought of the word treat, how you treat yourself and other people. That's right. Is that a, is that a way of thinking about it? Okay. Absolutely. Okay. And then wow. the last two are the context we've talked about and the physical dimension, which I'm sure you know a lot about. But the physical dimension is really the container that you call by your name. Right. And all the things that we do to it to gain acceptance or to be, or how people put, again, there's so much context related to this one too. What's attractive in one culture? I used to, in my sociology class, uh, take 
the mandala and list the eight dimensions and then have them uh, talk about how they might be different in, say, uh, Mexico than in South Dakota. Mm -hmm. might be the differences around each one of these dimensions. Yeah, when you use the, the word container, I've been thinking about that word container and containment a lot. Uh, there's the uh, child psychiatrist Donald Winnicott that talked about a holding environment. And, uh, you know, when you're talking about children that struggle to thrive, the need to be held, how important that is. And I think about the physical realm, you know, in, in the practices that I've looked at, um, physical practices, I think there's an embodiment there's an expression of the physical that that when we move, when we dance, when we work out, when we do yoga, when we walk in nature, there is a physical connection to to the inside and the outside that creates a space and a containing space then to hold a variety. Of, yeah. So we're just talking about the physical and, and your use of the word container makes me think of of just how powerful it is when we get grounded in our body and we move or we go for a walk that we are then able to um, contain and hold and look at our experience or nurture them as, as you were talking about earlier. Okay. So anything else you want to say about the physical? No, I mean, there's a lot to talk about. You know, one of the things that's amazing to me is how the body talks to people mm -hmm. and how people tend to just ignore it until it talks to us to the point where, we, you know, we really have to pay attention. Right. Yeah. I, um, yeah, there's a lot to talk about. The physical part is what a lot of people believe this, especially the kids that I've met historically, is that this is often so difficult for them because they don't know about the other parts. This is the part they're most aware of. This is the part, you know, that is very difficult between the ages of 13 and 25, this adolescence and becoming an adult. And a lot of it focuses on this physical dimension. Mm -hmm. Attractiveness, attractiveness, sexuality. That stuff. So it's a, yeah. a loaded issue. It's a very powerful issue. Um, I'm always amazed how people, and what amazes me is how people can adapt as well around this physical dimension. I had the honor for a while of working with people that had amputations of their legs. Yeah. And what was really interesting to me is how well they adapted and changed in responses to um, things like trauma. And how some people did so well and some people didn't. Yeah. And they had to do a lot with the perceptions of self. Yeah, one one of the things is we're talking and going through the different different layers or different aspects or arms of the mandala is when we were just talking about teenagers and maybe when they're dealing with insecurity around their body and attractiveness that I think, you know, you in, in the way that you could use this tool, it it sort of fleshes out that there's much more to you than the physical. And if you bring in the intellectual, the emotional the interactional, the nutritional, when you bring in these other components, then you're talking about wholeness. And wh wholeness to me is a is one of those universals that uh, Virginia kept kept working towards no matter what the symptom was. Um, can you can you speak to that? This this theme of wholeness and how the, the mandala helps uh, people experience that and, and engage. You know um, let me tell you two stories. Well, first one is I have a worksheet I'll send it to you and that you can use, but it's a wonderful worksheet and we use it with kids. A lot of my friends use it with their kids and it's basically an inventory of self using each one of the dimensions. And what you have them do is you have people write down, can you give yourself an appreciation of each one of these dimensions? Mm. And you'll find that there's a dimension they get to and they go, Ugh. right. It's not something, and so that's where really then maybe you want to pay attention to or talk about what are the issues that you get stuck on. So, you know, doing an inventory of self is kind of interesting, I think. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that that the way the way to uh, almost assess or check out each of these layers is can you appreciate it? Can you appreciate that's it? That's neat. Yeah. yeah. Can you go back and repeat the first part of that question? Yeah, it's, yeah, no, it's it seems like, you know, when you're going through the layers of the mandala, one way to check out where maybe there's a hook or there's a trigger point for people is asking them to try to appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Because if they, can, if they can appreciate it, the energy can flow, the communication can flow about it. But if not, then, oh, okay, that's that's an area 
where there may be some trauma or a barrier or a rule around it that's preventing. Right. And that's when you can go to work. I often, when I'm doing a workshop, I'll take a person you know, I, for a volunteer. And then what we'll do is we'll walk them around their parts and I'll have them pick out one person in the audience to represent their physical part, one person to represent their spiritual part. So every pretty soon they're surrounded by these parts. And then I want them to turn around to each part and say, tell them how, what you appreciate about them. Right. And as they go around, it's often very powerful. And they get to this one part and they go, oh. And then they say, okay, what do you need? Mm. What part, if you look around, what part can help you with this? Nice, yeah. So you bring that part over and you hand it, stand next to that other dimension and say, what do, what do you need to tell this person? Or what do they? you need to tell yourself about this piece? Mm, what beautiful. Are you yeah. And so what you can do then is begin to find out, because it's right. eventually we all do our own problem solving. Yeah. And my favorite line of all times, and I really believe this, is that therapy isn't something you do to anybody. It's something you do with them. Yeah. Right? And so what you're wanting to do is you want to empower them as much as you can to realize that they have these resources and that they can make a connection with those resources. And so that's one of the ways I do that is I have them. It's called a walk around the mandala. Mm. And it's just beautiful. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I can just imagine that. Reading, yeah. If you remember the temperature reading. Yeah. You know, what are the appreciations? What parts puzzle you the most? What parts, you know? Yeah. So there's that whole kind of idea of taking a look at it in a an iceberg. Every dimension of the iceberg, if you take a dimension of the mandala and take the iceberg and put them next to each other, you can every dimension of the mandala has an iceberg. Okay. So try that on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I will. I guess the I want to come back to your use of the word resourcing or resources because I, you know, I was doing a training with uh, Maria Gamori a mm -hmm. few years ago and we were talking about resources and the, I think we were talking about the mandala actually, but then other kinds of resources as well. And I asked her for a definition. I said, "What how do you define resources?" Because it seemed like so many different things could be a resource. And she answered, I don't really remember what she said, but I, I thought about it a little bit more. And I, and I thought of the therapy process as resourcing that, for example, reframing is taking something that maybe was a negative and turning it into something that was useful, that, that you could use as a resource. And when you're describing the way that you use the mandala, it's like, okay, what's the resource? The part of you that's maybe a bit far, that's a bit disavowed at this point. How can we change the interactional pattern there, bring it in so then it's a resource rather than something that is um, in the corner, shamed about or something like that. I, I really love that um, that picture because it honors the multi-dimensions, uh, the multi-layers of us. And um, I think it speaks to the empowering way that Virginia worked and um, the emphasis that you're describing on that that we need to entrust and empower rather than to do for um because there's really that that doesn't work um no, yeah. no. it's when people become aware of, the, of things you know one of the greatest things for me as a for teaching freshmen in college was watching them have their lights come on mm -hmm. um people that never i worked in a small community college where people were often taught that they couldn't go on or they didn't have the ability and all of a sudden they find out that they have the resources that they're no, you know, they have the ability and they, once they tap that, they just turn on. Mm. Virginia was all about turning on people's lights. She was really all about people trying to, um, you know, when she asked me to join Avanta the last year, uh, her goal was to take people and have those people advance her work, not just to repeat her work, but to say, can we, how can we find, how can we use sculpting in, in a new way or more powerful way? How can we use um, the iceberg and what are the various contexts? So to go back to your original question, when I fell in love with the mandala, we were teaching children uh, working with non-secure, people who were working with children in secure and non-secure holding facilities. These were children that were being locked up in adult jails and as a result of that suffered greatly because there wasn't any sound separation and bad things often happen to young people in jails. So there was this idea of trying to create 
separation. And one of them was looking at alternatives to incarceration. Mm -hmm. So we used the mandala for two days to take a look at who are these children that you'd be working with? What, what are, so we looked at their family systems. What are the various things you're going to encounter? What to do, what not to do. If you're a Baptist minister and you want to help these kids, this is not the context that you, you know, to, to, to evangelize. This right. is time to be with them and comfort them. So you have to address all the rules, the spiritual issues, the intellectual issues. Here are some of these kids that are very, very smart. You know, so you use the mandala to teach the, uh, the groups that's going to be working with them to make them more sensitive to mm -hmm. these people, to see that they also have the same dimensions. See, that's the hook. If the people that are working with it can identify and realize that, ah, I have the same one. I have these same things. They might be more sensitive to how they work mm. with these kids. And we found it to work very well. Yeah. If you look at the process of change, which is one of my favorite models that Satir has, and you put a mandala first, and then you look at the, the, the foreign element, the foreign element comes in at one of those dimensions for all of us. People can have a spiritual crisis. People can have an intellectual crisis. Mm. If you work with a tra traumatic brain injury, you realize that there's a physical, intellectual, emotional problem going on instantly, right? right. So these are the kinds of things that I think the, the uh, I, I think the, the mandala is also very good for helping do assessments. Yeah, you know? I, I, I want to come back to what you're describing with working with those kids who I imagine because of whatever trouble or, or um, neglectful kind of environments they're in, they, they may have in, they likely engaged in uh, negative behavior, destructive behavior. And I think the, the mandala and the various tools that Virginia created helped, uh, helped people transcend looking at behavior alone and looking at the whole person, looking at them as, as people of worth that um, had the capacity for growth and the capacity for connection. That's and right. that the, the, the things that we saw on the superficial layer represented the best learning and the best survival coping that they could come up with at that time. And that goes back generations and the appreciation of that. And um, yeah, and, and I think, you know, bringing and integrating what I appreciate, I think so much about what you've done is integrating the different tools that Virginia created and finding the relationships between them, the process of change and how that integrates with these various um, layers of the mandala or various um, branches of, of it. Um, can we, can we shift gears a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm the, the two other questions I wanted to make sure we cover it is what are your, what are your hopes for the future direction of, of Virginia's work? We're, we're talking about the mandala. Uh, maybe it has to do with that, or maybe it, it's something more generally. Um, I, as a, you know, I've, I've been in practice now 11 years. Um, I, and as I was doing my training, I felt like there was not much exposure or learning about Virginia's work. So, and what she has to offer, I think is so powerful and useful. Could you speak to that sort of in your experience from 1973 till now, what's your, what's your hope for the future? What, when, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I really have a hope and a wish that, you know, when Virginia died, there was quite a bit of chaos about how do we could advance the foundation. And for since 1988, literally the global network has struggled to identify, create its, find its mission, which was basically to, to advance the work of Virginia. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're on the right track now. We're starting to create some online classes. Um, but the hope and wish is that we begin to teach it in curriculums in colleges. Um, mm -hmm. It's really interesting going to the Czech Republic, the Slovakia, and in China, they've all got some curriculum or courses on Virginia Satir. Everybody seems to know about her. Come to the States, nobody knows about her. Right. Um, so, and I think it largely had to do because she was a woman and uh, she was a social worker. And so everybody calls her a psychologist because she got an honorary doctorate. But she was a social worker who was a very bright woman who knew how to surround herself with people that would help her advance her work. Yeah. That's what she really wanted. And so my hope and wish is that it enters into college classrooms, that social workers begin to find out that one of the greatest social workers in the history of the United States was a woman named Virginia Satir from Northern mm -hmm. Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. um, 
That's what I want. I mean, I, I really believe that she had, you know, a lot of the stuff I learned in college, I couldn't use. It was really good theoretically yeah. and sounded great, but I didn't know how to incorporate it. When I met Virginia Satir, she actually said, you know, these, there are some tools. And what I want to do is everybody thought, well, that's Virginia. Only Virginia could do that. And Virginia knew that that wasn't true, that she really did have a formula that she was trying to teach. But sadly enough, she died before that was fully articulated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what I want was what to, I would seriously love to see more, more integration into the social work field itself, more people becoming aware of who she is. And I would like to see more of it into brought into colleges and universities. Yeah. And I and I I think I would add, and I know there's people in the satiric community that also want to emphasize it in public education, because I think Absolutely. one of one of the things that differentiates her from other theories is um, it's so experiential because what she was teaching is um, how to be fully human, uh, how how to make use of yourself, how like you're describing with the mandala, what are the dimensions of yourself that you could explore and enrich and live through and express. Um, and yeah, I think that it's, it's an education that, you know, there's content pieces like arithmetic and writing, and then there's processes of how do I get in touch with my inner world? How do I express that? How do I comment on things that I see? Of these cultural and family rules so that I'm empowered, that I'm not just in a certain pattern or programming, but I can be empowered with my awareness to then make choices. You know, she talked a lot about becoming your own choice maker. And these these things, you know, a lot of a lot of therapeutic systems focus on symptom reduction, but she transcended all of that. And, you know, she, I think she even said she doesn't spend much time with symptoms because what she's focused in on is health. And this is before the positive psychology movement, um, the, the idea of wellness and um, what is the highest expressions of a human being and um, which is well said by the way thank you yeah um, uh, and, and you know I hope we can collaborate more on that idea of of integrating um, these kinds of uh, learnings because they're universal they're not I mean her ability to be physically present her ability to communicate are uniquely her talents but the but the the, the, the model and the ways of thinking about what it means to be human what it what how we can improve our communication their skills their skills that could be learned and I, probably 80 percent of the work i do is not with therapists or teaching therapists it's mostly working with uh, hospitals small businesses um, around leadership issues or working with uh, clients that may be um, angry or dangerous or what that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But it's really about uh, most of the stuff is how do you how do you use these models to teach general populations? Mm -hmm. Leadership programs, for example, um, programs about suicide, all actually um, are. So it's a general, I, excuse me, what I'm trying to say is that this model is really something that most laymen can understand and get their hands on yeah. and use. Yeah. It's not yeah. psychobabble. Yeah, and it transcends disciplines. Um, you know, I've I've heard people in engineering or computer science uh, using her model, and and it just it's it can kind of go in all sorts of different directions. Um, Stephen, just as we're, you know, I'm I'm feeling kind of uh, that that maybe we could start to round out now, and this has been a, a wonderful experience with you. I wanted to connect with you and reflect on you know what this conversation's been like for you to reflect on Virginia to reflect on your own work and your own learning process. Can you share just in this moment, uh, something of your own experience right now? Well, I'll tell you what I feel when I talk to you, Tim, is hopeful. <laughs> um, this experience has been very good. I, I, I find myself often looking for audiences to share my ideas about the mandala. Um, so I, I really, uh, I've enjoyed this conversation. Great, great. And do you have, have you created an online course for the mandala yet? 
Uh, no, we've included it in the uh, Satira Foundation's online class, but uh, no, but that's really something I need to work on. Okay, yeah. So I, I'd love to, you know, encourage you to and support you in that in any way that I can. I think that's something that needs to happen um, in creating a tool, uh, an online resource, and then also, um, you know, if there's if there's different workshops and things like that, then that we can learn about. Then, yeah, I'd love to well, learn I hope more, you, more from I see you in the fall. Yeah. Um, we're doing a workshop with a local hospital on uh, how to use the model of working with generational issues. Okay. So that should be an interesting experiment. Right. Okay. Any final things that you'd like to share about yourself, about your work? Any any final? Well, I'd messages? like to invite uh, anybody who's listening to uh, jo join us on Facebook and visit our website. Um, there's, if you're looking for uh, material about Virginia Satir, there's a number of links. Uh, there's in, including videos uh, on the you know, on the website and okay. other. So I would encourage us to, to visit. Okay. The site. Yeah, I'll share I'll share links to those um, to the Satir Global Network and then the Facebook um, page. You'd like me to share that as well. So I'll do that. Um, thank you, Stephen. We're at exactly an hour now. An hour and forty five seconds. I've I've really enjoyed our, our conversation and I've learned so much. Thank you so much. I did too. I really enjoyed being with you. I was very nervous about it. <laughs>